Good afternoon, everybody. This is Don Fox, and my special guest this week is, once again, uh, William Fink uh, from crystalgenia.org. And we're doing kind of a mini-series here on, uh, you know, the end of the world, you know, quote-unquote, um, you know, where we've been, where we're going, and, you know, how this thing is going to all end up. And the, the first show we were concerned with, you know, getting out, you know, who's who. Because uh, you can't really make heads or tails of what's going on out there unless you know who the actual players are. So, who are the Jews? You know, who, what are white people? You know, who are Asians? Who are Africans? Um, so we covered that. That most of the people, most of the white people today, are uh, descended from uh, Jacob Israel. So we're the true Israelites. Um, the Jews are Edomites. And uh, the other races appear to be the, you know, from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, a pre-Adamic race. Um, but we don't have a lot of scripture or other references for that, so, you know, we'll just stick to being, well, we're Israelites and the other races are not. So part of that has been since day one then the the jews have been attacking our race trying to steal our birthright and uh um, the latest you know incarnation of this has been the uh uh their their state israel that again they've named you know they've stolen our identity um they, they stole our identity they named their outlaw state you know after our Aryan uh, patriarch uh, jacob israel and, um, you know, it, it's studying history, to me, it looks like the, the real primary goal of World War One and Two was the creation of this nuclear terrorist state, Israel. And make no mistake, uh, Israel was designed from the beginning as a nuclear terrorist state. Um, and here I've just jotted down some of their more uh, brazen uh, terrorist attacks on, on just the United States. Um, number one, the JFK assassination. JFK was seen as a direct threat to the survival of Israel. Uh, had he lived, Kennedy would have put an end to Israel's illicit nuclear weapons program. Tensions with Kennedy uh, caused Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion to resign. Kennedy was then lured to the Zionist stronghold Dallas uh, to raise campaign funds for the 1964 election. The local Jewish community, led by Sam Bloom, insisted that Kennedy speak at the trademark, which sent JFK's motorcade into the kill zone in Dealey Plaza. And some researchers believe that Nahum Goldman of the World Jewish Congress uh, ordered the hit on Kennedy. And then to the uh, Levon affair, uh, Egyptian Jews were uh, recruited by Israeli military intelligence to plant bombs inside Egyptian American and British-owned civilian targets, cinemas, libraries, and American educational centers. The bombs were timed to detonate several hours after closing time. The attacks were to be blamed on the Muslim Brotherhood, Egyptian communists, and unspecified malcontents or local nationalists, with the aim of creating a climate of sufficient violence and instability to induce the British government to retain its occupying uh, troops in the Suez Canal zone. And then three uh, uh, 
the USS Liberty, which just, we just had the anniversary here a few days ago. Um, on June 8, 1967, as Israel was torturing Egyptian prisoners of war at El Aresh, some 13 miles off the Mediterranean coast, the Israeli Air Force bombed the USS Liberty, resulting in the deaths of 34 American servicemen, leaving 174 injured, many seriously. It was an attack on an unarmed U.S. intelligence ship. President Johnson ordered U.S. fighter planes uh, that were being sent to, def to defend the ship to return to base. Uh, he wanted the ship to sink, and they were going to blame the attack on Egypt and then nuke Cairo. And uh, a more modern attack here, uh, number four, uh, the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. Uh, October 23, 1983, in Beirut, uh, Lebanon, two truck bombs struck separate buildings housing United States and French military forces. Members of the multinational force, uh, MNF, in uh, Lebanon, killing 299 American and French servicemen. An obscure group calling itself Islamic Jihad was blamed for the Israeli nuclear terrorist attack. And then number five, uh, 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Jewish nukes strike yet again. The bombing killed 168 people and injured more than 680 others. The blast destroyed or damaged 324 buildings within a 16-block radius, destroyed or burned 86 cars, and shattered glass in 258 nearby buildings. And then the, uh, the final one here from our alleged ally, Israel, 9-11. Uh, uh, the greatest false flag nuclear terrorist attack of all time. Israel nuked all seven World Trade Center buildings and the Pentagon. Two-thirds of the Twin Towers and Building 7 were completely vaporized, along with over uh, 1,100 people. Underground nuclear blasts heated ground zero uh, to temperatures as high as 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for six months after 9-11. So with all that background... Um, I think anybody that's informed uh, would, would have to say that, you know, these interlopers in Palestine today cannot be known as God's chosen people. They just can't be. They, um, they're they pure evil, and uh, uh, they're behind just about all of the intrigue and dastardly deeds that we see going on today. Well, well they're behind more, a lot more than that. They were behind the... Um the assassination of President Garfield. They were behind the shooting of oh, the, the McKinley yeah, assassination. I mean, they were behind the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand that started, that there was the, the, the pretense, because World War I was inevitable, but that was the pretense for starting World War I. They were behind the, the, the sinking of the Lusitania. Yeah, that this was, was all this was to get America into World War yeah. I. Right. All, all these, all these here were just post forty-eight. You know, this is, this was, this was just since the state of Israel came back into being. You know, our alleged ally over in the Middle East. But yeah, Jewish people have been behind a lot of assassinations and wars. Right. It's it's never ended. Whenever you see sudden outbursts of of violence aimed at getting a um, political ends, you'll know that Jews are behind it. 99.9% of the time, Jews were behind it. Jews agitated it. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind. No, uh, me either. And, I, you know, 
and I'm sure most of your audience is, is going to be, you know, more than aware of this stuff, as is mine. But, you know, perhaps this podcast finds its way to uh, some people who aren't as familiar with our stuff. So They were um, organizing these terror groups in Palestine in the 20s, 30s, and, and 40s, and they blew up the King David Hotel because they oh, yeah. were that they were um, confident that they could hold on to it by themselves at that point. So they wanted the British to get out of there. They wanted the British out of the way. When the when, when um when the when the English king wouldn't leave so easily, they blew up the King David Hotel, killed a bunch of British soldiers. Lyndon Johnson was a guy that was running guns into into to Palestine back in the forties, thirties and forties. That wouldn't surprise you know, as, me. I mean, I don't know much about Johnson, but that wouldn't surprise me one bit. Yeah, as was Jack Ruby, Rubenstein, Jacob Rubenstein. That, that's the, um, the Jews have always been treacherous bastards using violence and, and manipulation in order to achieve political ends. That, that was what the, um, the French Revolution was all about. The French Revolution was inspired by Jews behind the Grand Orient Masonic Lodge. And as soon as they gained power, off came the heads. They started decapitating the heads of white Christian noblemen. Yeah, this 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 Jewish state over in Palestine now. So they've stolen our name, and then ever since they've come into being, we've funded them. We've sent them billions of dollars. And what have we? What what have we? What's the reward for all that? Well, nuclear terrorism. It was designed as a nuclear terrorist state from the beginning because that's that was the most. See, all all the other world leaders know that Israel has nukes and they will use them. The Israeli state in Palestine is is well, well, Adolf Hitler had it pegged, right? It gives Jews a safe haven and a college for crooks and criminals at the same time. And, and what well, once a Jew escapes to to the Israeli state in Palestine, he's basically not going to be extradited, prosecuted for, for crimes overseas. Because the Talmud forbids Jews from being tried in quote-unquote Gentile courts, another Jew cannot righteously, under the Talmud, right, which is the law book of the devil, they cannot um, send or commit their fellow Jews to Gentile courts. That, that's why they're so... Um, that's why they hate the Jonathan Pollard conviction so much, because he's still in prison because he was turned over to Gentile courts. Although well, he, he's been released now. They, Obama let him out, but no, yeah, he no, sat in there for no a long surprise. time. Yeah. No surprise, but if that was a, a, a white guy, a Christian, he'd never see the light of day. Never. No. He'd never have he'd a chance. Be down, he'd be down in the hole forever, yeah. And, and they would have had him in Florence, in Colorado, far underground, right? In that cavernous collection of um, prison cells they have deep under the ground, where you never do these, you never do see daylight. So you, yeah, I guess for the so for the purposes for our discussion here, the the main takeaway out of all this is that that these people that call themselves Israel in in Palestine today cannot possibly be the Israelites of the Bible. 
No, absolutely not. And and there is the the proof of that that's in the Bible itself is insurmountable. It it can't be denied once you understand the Bible from the correct historical viewpoint and in its correct historical context. There is um a plethora of evidence in, in the Bible and in the history of another book that the Jews like to claim for themselves, and that's the Judean historian Flavius Josephus, who, who, when you put Flavius Josephus together with the Revelation and John chapter 8 and, and John chapter 10 and Romans chapter 9 and Luke chapters 10 and 11, you, you put all these things together and, and the books of the Maccabees in, in a lot of respects, you, you come up with a, a clear narrative that shows that the first or, or the earliest recorded Bolshevik revolution where the Jews, where it's recorded that the Jews actually infiltrated and subverted a nation are when the Edomites had infiltrated and subverted Judea, which was a white, um, I'm going to call it a Christian nation because it was. Even though it's before Christ, it's a Christian nation because they are people who are looking forward to Christ. And, and the proof of that is all over the Gospels as well. So they were a, a white pre-Christian Christian nation that was subverted by these Edomite Jews and violence was used against the rulers in Jerusalem with an, an alliance, an un, unseemly alliance between the Edomites and the Romans where the Romans were manipulated into handing the kingdom over to the Edomite King Herod who helped Rome conquer the kingdom and once Rome conquered the kingdom, Herod, the Edomite king, he became the king, and from there on, appointed all of his Edomite cronies into all of the positions of power. Now, 40 years later, Christ is born, and, and from from the time of the beginning of the ministry of Christ, that is what accounts for all of the division in the New Testament. It, it's a struggle between Jesus and Satan. It's a literal struggle between Jesus and Satan. Because Satan isn't a spirit in heaven. That idea is so childish, it's ridiculous. Satan it is a group of people walking here in the earth, and their representative throughout history has been the Jew. But before they took over the kingdom of Judea, they had taken over other kingdoms by other names, and, and it's, it's a series, it's a pattern that they repeat all throughout history. And anybody with any sense of recent history should be able to see the same pattern today. They did the same thing, the same exact thing in England in the 17th century when they financed Oliver Cromwell and King Charles I lost his head. It's the same thing they did in England in the 17th century. They did in Judea in the 1st century B.C. It's a pattern we've seen time and time again. The Jews don't really ever build anything. What they do is they wait for, you know, basically our white race to build a nation or a city or, you know, whatever. And then they infiltrate it and take it over. Absolutely. Every time. 
the, the and, and we discussed this, I believe, in the first installment of this program, the kingdom of ancient Israel, all the way back in the time of David. There is all, I mean, I know there's going to be naysayers that think, oh, this guy's joking. That kingdom didn't really exist. I could show you 500 inscriptions that proved that it did. Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian inscriptions that proved that it did exist. So it, it's these jokers that, yeah, you know, these people are, are easily fooled when they study one subject in one area. And, and you really have to be a polymath. You have to study many subjects in many areas to put the whole story together. The, the, um, the kingdom of Israel, which did exist, grew up as a pastoral nation which was pushing these Canaanite peoples out of the way and these Canaanite peoples are represented in the Bible as a cursed people who committed all kinds of filthy acts Sodom and Gomorrah were Canaanite cities now the Bible story that Esau who was the brother and and um, competitor, competitor of Jacob had married Canaanite wives and his children, his descendants, were forever opposed and enemies of the descendants of Israel. But when all of the Israelites were taken out of the way by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Edomites took over Judea in the 5th and 6th centuries BC. And this is evident in actual Babylonian and Persian inscriptions. And, and in the writings of Hellenistic Greeks and, and early Romans. This can be proven without doubt if you believe our histories. If you don't believe our histories, you may as well just go hang yourself because you have nothing to stand on. We can't believe that 80 generations of white historians have been lying. I, I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and all of these inscriptions that the, um, the struggle between these Edomites and these Israelites has been at the center of history ever since. The Israelites were promised, while the Old Testament revolves around one family, one part of this family and its history in Palestine, there are actually many other parts of this family that had spread into Europe from Egypt without Moses. And they became Trojans, and they became Romans. And this is recorded in certain Greek histories, namely in the final volumes of the Library of History of Diodorus Siculus. It, it's, it's mentioned in several paragraphs. The people of Israel were promised to become many nations, and they did. And, and it's off the map of the history of Palestine, because the history... The, the biblical history is only concerned with what's happening in Palestine. And that's where our, um, our civilization, our society, and all of our religious beliefs have come from ever since, whether they be the evil abuses of the original religion of the Old Testament found in Judaism or and Islam, or whether they be the truth of Christianity. And we can prove, but it takes it might take 200 programs, but I've already done this at Christagenia, right? We can prove that Christianity is true. Sure, yeah. So, with all that background now, I mean, obviously, like we, like we said before, the, the Jews have never formed many nations. They haven't even formed one. 
No, they infiltrate uh, and subvert. Infiltrate and subvert. That's all they ever done. The only reason so, why they have Palestine is because they subverted America and Britain into getting it for them. Yeah, they 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 couldn't have never have taken it over on their own, and you know that goes back to the whole. Uh, uh, oh, geez, what was that letter? Uh, Rothschild. Uh, the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was paying homage to to Lord Rothschild or Bauer is what what their real name was, but we the digress. Jews, so the Jews and the Muslims, the Jews and the Turks, the Ottoman Empire always got along very well. But you are right that the Jews could never say, "Hey, we want this whole chunk of Palestine for ourselves." The Ottomans would have never let them get away with that. Yeah, they needed a real actual fighting force to go in and. and take it over and you, you can't have an army if you don't have a nation to you know fund and supply people for the army you, you can't have an army of jews uh it, i don't know if you've ever seen the youtube clip of uh oh who was the chess player bobby fisher he was talking about uh uh Jews, they don't like work, and they're all fat and flabby. And then somebody at, on this YouTube clip put up a picture of Israeli soldiers, and they all have guts, and uh, you know their uniforms don't fit very well, and <laughs> <laughs> they don't look like they're well suited to being out on the battlefield. That's funny. Yeah. So imagine those guys can't just bodily, you know, take over a chunk of land and and, and maintain it. Well, well, no, they've always been, um, that they've always, wow. If Joshua and the Hebrews were Jews, they would have invaded the land of Canaan with briefcases instead of swords. The, the Bible yep. would be a story about pencil-fucking the Canaanites out of their land, rather than fighting them head-on with swords and chariots. That, I mean, that's the Bible or a Jewish book. It'd be a banking and accounting manual. It would not be a book of war and 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 mor morality. So, all these pundits that claim that oh the Jews they're the people of the Old Testament, and then they're the you know these folks in Palestine today are the you know, chosen people of God. You okay? So just from a Okay, so we've gone over from a historical standpoint. If you're going to analyze what's going on in the world today, and that's what you believe, there's no way you can properly analyze what's going on on the planet right now. No, you can't. And there's also no way that you're ever going to win Christians to your cause. Because as long as Christians accept the lie that the... And this is a crucial point, which... Daisy Duke misses. As long as Christians accept the lie that the Jews are the people of the Bible, they're going to go to Genesis chapter 3 and read the blessing to Abraham, where God says to Abraham, I will curse those who curse you, and they will never turn on the Jews. They will always worship the Jews, because they believe that God's talking about Jews. Yeah, and you know, Stormfront, I listen to that once in a while, and then they, they always talk about there that, you know, Moses was a Jew, and, uh, you know, this or that person from the Old Testament was a Jew, and no, they're, none of those were Jews. Of course not. There were no Jews. Who were the no. Jews? 
what we're the, the word Jew doesn't even though it doesn't belong anywhere in the Bible and and that can be explained the word Jew doesn't appear in the English copies of the Bible until 2 Kings chapter 16 so how was Abraham a Jew and if if um well if Abraham was a Jew, then all the way back to Adam, you have nothing but Jews, and all the nations are Jews. So, what does it matter? Yeah, but and if that's your reference point, though, then what's going on in the world today makes absolutely no sense. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. You cannot interpret current events in in, in that framework. And you know, I guess today, you know, before the show started here, we were. Uh, talking and uh you thought it would be a good idea you know before we because the ultimate goal of this this little mini series here is to you know briefly kind of cover the the end times but um you know as bill was was telling me before the show look there's no way you're going to understand what's going on in revelation if you don't understand daniel so maybe a quick summation here of, of daniel would be in order well, well right first you have to understand the old testament in general and and that's for this reason. All of the symbolism used in Revelation comes from the Old Testament. And if you don't understand the Old Testament and the way that symbolism is used, then you cannot understand the way it is used in Revelation. It's that simple. It's that the um the symbols in Revelation were used for a specific reason. And that's to show that the people of the Revelation are the same people of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. That's the starting point. Second, you cannot understand the Revelation without understanding Daniel because the Revelation is built on Daniel. The Revelation uses a lot of the same language concerning kings and, and nations and people that Daniel was. The Revelation is aimed at the same people that the prophecies of Daniel were for. And and the proof of that is throughout the Revelation. It, it's in Revelation chapter 7. It's in Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 22, there's a city from God descended from heaven, and the names on the gates are those of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. If you're not one of those 12 tribes, you're not getting in the door. It's that simple. The... um. The prophet Daniel had some visions concerning history, and we know they're concerning history just very plainly from the context. The book of Nezar has a dream, and Daniel gives a lengthy vision of a four-parted beast with a head of gold and arms of silver and, and a, a trunk of brass and, and two legs of iron, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. And Daniel also tells Nebuchadnezzar that wherever the children of men dwell, that that beast that Nebuchadnezzar represented as the head of gold would rule over those children of men. Now, when you pay careful attention to that language and you understand history and you match up the four parts of that beast to the empires that followed Nebuchadnezzar's time, if Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And the Babylonians did, and we could discuss this in a second, dwell wheresoever the children of men dwelled. 
they did rule over wheresoever the children of men dwelt. And you understand that the, the, the kingdom that followed the Babylonians in world power were the Medes and the Persians. The kingdom of the Persians was also the kingdom of the Medes. In fact, Cyrus the Persian was the son of the king of the Medes. And the Medes had ruled over the Persians until Cyrus came along. And his one father was the, the chieftain of the Persians, and his other his mother's father was the king of the Medes. He inherited the kingdom, and it became Persia ruling over the Medes instead because of the predicament, right? Just like Scotland and England and how James V came down to rule England, and England really had sub, you know, had been above Scotland ever since then. It's kind of the same situation. So we have two arms. We have a beast with a head that's Babylon, and the next great world empire has two arms, and that's the Medes and the Persians. And the Greeks always called the Medes, whether or not they were Persians. Then we have the trunk of brass, and that represents the Greek empire, starting with Alexander, and other visions in Daniel very accurately foretell what's going to happen with that. And then we have the two legs of iron, and that's the Roman Empire. And it eventually has two capitals, Rome and Constantinople. So this beast represents, as Daniel tells us it does, these four great world empires. And... Daniel's telling this centuries and centuries before all this stuff happens. Then Daniel says that a, um, that these empires would rule wheresoever the children of men dwell. Okay, let's talk about that. Because that's an important concept to understand. Because the Bible's not written for all the people on the planet. The Bible's only written for one race of people that had its origination in Mesopotamia with that list of Genesis 10 nations, and even though later in history a lot of those Genesis 10 nations were no longer white because they were overrun, and the Bible talks about some of that as well. Well, they were all originally white, and they were all kindred to the white European people, and the white European nations came from those Genesis 10 nations. And that entire sand pit in the middle and near east 5,000 years ago, was all white. All the na- That was the center of what we would call Western civilization, was Mesopotamia and the Middle East and the Near East, which the Near East would be Persia and Afghanistan. Afghanistan, in, in Roman times, was called Ariana, meaning it was an Aryan land, and that gave us the word Iran. They're not white anymore. They're not even close now. But at one time that was the white world, and it shifted west, and it shifted west, and as it shifted west, we moved from the the Babylonian Empire to the Persian, to the Greek, to the Roman. Now the Babylonians did, and the Persians as well, because they had... um, because they had the Tyrians as part of their empire in the city Tyre on, on the coast of ancient Israel. And I can prove, but it would be too much to do here, that those original Tyrians, Hiram the king of Tyre, and all of his people, were indeed portions of the people of the Israelites. That can be proven. 
Now, they made their colonies in northern Africa and as far as Spain and also settled in Britain and Ireland, those Tyrians. Well, the book of Nezar actually did project his power that far west because he ruled over Tyre and because those colonies of Tyre at that time still had allegiances to Tyre. And there's more proof of that in the Persian period where when the Persians invaded Greece, they had the Carthaginians simultaneously invade Sicily. And in order to um, weaken the Greeks of Sicily and Italy and prevent them from aiding the Greece of Greeks, that was a divide-and-conquer method, which Herodotus, the Greek historian, describes. So the Persians and the... Babylonians, even though we modern people tend to think that these were isolated areas in the Middle East, they were not isolated at all, and they did extend their power far into Europe and the Mediterranean. The Persians had circled the entire Black Sea and and subjected and, and ruled over the Scythians, which are the ancestors of the Germans, and the Thracians, and, and they did reach far and wide. The world was not as big and remote a place as we think it was back then. So the children of men that the Bible is concerned with are these white empires that Daniel prophecies which unfold throughout history. And they're the people of the Bible. These other races, the Chinese, the Persians and the Babylonians, the Babylonians never ruled over China. They're not the children of men, or the God of the Bible is a liar. The sub-Saharan Africans... The Romans, the Persians, the Greeks, they never ruled over the sub-Saharan Africans or the people in South America or, or the um, the North American prairie niggers. They never ruled over any of them. They, those people are simply outside of the scope of the Bible, and they still are to this day. They exist for another reason, but they are still outside of the scope and the covenants and the promises of God and the... the world of scripture the world of scripture is the white world and that's what the bible is concerned with and that, that's a point that has been lost uh, you know through the you know for whatever reason political or um, you know undermining by certain tribes or whatever that this universalism that the, that crept in, and, and, uh, and that's what I was taught from the beginning was that you know salvation was open to all. That uh, there's this spiritual Israel I see referred to, where you know, some pundits talk about how the covenant with the original people of Israel was ended, and now then then Christ came in the New Testament and he threw it open to everybody. Well, well, right, and and that's simply a lie. If you go to Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about the hope of Israel, the promises of God being for the 12 tribes. If you go to the first, first verses of the epistle of James, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. This spiritual Israel thing is a big Jewish lie. It started out as a Catholic lie. It is not 
the Christianity of the apostles. The apostles, if you go to Paul in Acts chapter 26, if you go to James in James chapter 1, if you go to Revelation chapters 7, 14, 21, you'll see that the children of Israel are reckoned by tribes, not by some kind of spiritual clouds or something, by tribes. Tribes can only be physical descendants of people. Yeah, they make it sound like, well, you can be born again in Christ and your body doesn't matter. Well, well that, that that's okay. Nicodemus had a misunderstanding of Christ's words and talked about being born again. But Christ wasn't talking about being born again. Christ was talking about being born from above, which symbolizes being born of the Adamic race, which came from God, because Adam was the son of God. Luke chapter 3. Adam had the spirit of God. Genesis chapter 2. These other races do not have that. How do we know? Because we can follow the descendants of Adam. And only the people of Adam in the Bible are considered having been born from above. The mixed-race Edomites that Christ spoke to, he told them that they were from below. They were born of the earth and not of God. Why? Because they were bastards. They were bastard races, and God didn't create bastards. No, I mean, it says right here in Matthew, uh, uh, what is it, uh, uh, 1524, uh, Yahshua, or Jesus, said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Where did he tell the disciples to go? He said, rather go unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, well, right, and there's all sorts of evidence that those are those nations which sprang up from Abraham, which were part of that wheresoever the men of children of men dwell in Daniel chapter 2. So I don't see anything in Scripture that, that includes anything but other than the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, well you won't. And, and it's, it's explained throughout the prophets of the Old Testament where many of those people went. And it's explained throughout the epistles of Paul who many of those people were. And, and the Galatians were... Um, Paul told the Galatians that they were the seed of Abraham. I don't care how the Catholic Church wants to interpret that word seed. They've always been uncomfortable with those passages. They try to turn seed into believers. But Paul defines the nations of the seed in Romans chapter 4. According to the promise, thus thy seed will be. When Abraham was given that promise, he understood seed to be his offspring that the seed, as it says explicitly in the book of Genesis, would come from his loins. Seed only comes from one place. It comes from your loins. It doesn't come from your mind. It doesn't come from a book. It doesn't come from a belief. Abraham's belief is that his seed from his loins would become many nations. Paul's talking to the nations of the faith of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. If you want to understand what the nations of the faith of Abraham are, it's not 
the faith like Abraham. It's the faith of Abraham. And to understand what the faith of Abraham is, you have to understand what Abraham believed. And when you go back to Genesis and you understand what Abraham believed, he believed that his seed would become many nations. So the people of the faith of Abraham and the people of the seed of Abraham are the people of those nations which descended from Abraham. And today we, we see those nations as being you know, England, Germany, the United States, you know, yes. Scotland. Yes, and that can all be established in history. That's where I was starting with Galatians. Paul told the Galatians they're the seed of Abraham. The Galatians were Galatahi. The Galatahi in ancient Greek were the, um, in the ancient Greek historians, were the people descended from the Scythians. They were the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. They were called by Chimerian, Galatahi and Scythian, as well as by Sake, at diverse times by the Assyrians, the Greeks, and the Persians. They became the people that we know later on in history as Gauls and Germans. Abraham talked to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he told them very bluntly that their ancestors were baptized in the cloud and in the sea by Moses. Who are the Corinthians? Well, the Corinthians were Dorian Greeks. And the Dorian Greeks are only known to the poet Homer, who described the whole world as being in Crete. They were in Crete because that was their staging area before the Trojan War. They moved into the Peloponnesus two generations after the Trojan War. When Homer said that the Dorians were in Crete, he was talking about the time of the Trojan War. The Dorians were from the Israelite tribe of Manasseh. They came from Dor in Palestine. That's where they came from. And Paul of Tarsus told them that their ancestors were with Moses in the Exodus. That's the only way they could have been with Moses in the Exodus. So the Dorian Greeks came from Dor in Palestine, or Paul of Tarsus is a liar. But wait, there's another witness. In the books of, in, in the pages of Flavius Josephus, he reprints a letter from the king of Sparta. The Spartans were also Dorian Greeks, same tribe as the Corinthians. He not only reprints a letter from the king of Sparta, claiming to be of the seed of Abraham. The letter is also found in the book of Maccabees, chapter 13, I think it is. So so then we, we see the Old Testament actually uh, jiving with, with ancient history from, from other sources. Once you and understand... The ancient history, no doubt. There's no doubt. You know, and it says right in the protocols. You know, the the Jews talk about how they will rewrite history for their benefit, and, and they have. That, that started... can't. That that's a point that you know I don't hear enough people making, and that you know there's a lot of stuff in the protocols, and obviously we'll we'll probably do something on that at some point. And I know you've got your series coming up, uh, but. It's that taking, right there, the, it's, if you I'm don't sorry, know your past, there's me, no way. It's taking me forever to lay the groundwork for it. I'm sorry. Yeah. 
No, no, and that, that's going to be awesome when it comes out. Uh, but, yeah, I spent a lot of time last summer on the protocols, and that point alone is so huge because um, what do Jews do, if nothing else? I mean, what, what does the media do? Why do they lie to you? So you don't know your own history. You don't know what happened to, to Jack Kennedy in Dealey Plaza. You don't know what happened in New York on 9-11. You, know, you don't know what happened in World War II. You don't know what happened in Dresden. The rewriting of history is real, and, and it's very powerful. After, um, after World War II, there was a denazification program that was put into place to, to convince generations of Germans that things happened that never happened, and that things that happened never did. It, it's, it's, wow. It, it's the, the, a good proof of the rewriting of history and how effective it can be. And this might upset a few of my, um, Slavic listeners, but I don't care. It's the dead truth. These people that inhabit Macedonia today, which the United Nations gave them permission to use the name Macedonia under protests from the Greeks, the people that inhabit Macedonia today, are like 99% Slavs. And they came from Asia probably after the 6th and 7th centuries AD. Perhaps even later than that. Some of them didn't come until the 9th or 10th centuries AD. Under the Soviets, these Macedonians were re-educated. They rewrote all the books. And they have these Slavic people, who are good people. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the people. They have these Slavic people in modern Macedonia, believing that they're the descendants of the Greeks from 2,500 years ago. And they believe it. And they're so convinced in it that you will never convince them otherwise. Because that was a re-education program that began with Stalin in the 1930s. Yeah, the the infamous Bolshevik re-education programs. Uh, that so much damage has been done by Bolshevism to our people that, and and a lot of people aren't even aware that they they've been victimized by it. Um, you you watch the you know television, and it's it's all basically Bolshevism. Right. That's it's all that's what's on TV. I mean, it's. It's it's lies and in and and BS just from start to finish. Bolshevism started in Genesis chapter three over yep. seventy five hundred years ago. That's where Bolshevism starts. And in, in our history. It's probably older than that. That's why we yeah, had a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was already in the garden when Adam was created. Yeah, and, and Satan will go forth and deceive the nations. And see, everybody thinks that, well, that everybody else is deceived but me. Right. And it says right there, he will go forth and deceive the nations. Well, look at, everyone has been deceived for the most part. So that, that part is absolutely true. And, uh, well, that well was, right. They're, they're all, the whole world is Zionist. The, the whole world has basically um, accepted Jewish supremacism. It, I mean, if that's you, not you, Satan deceiving the nations, I don't know what it's. Yeah, so that that, that part that's actually that that has absolutely been fulfilled. Um, so I guess the 
you know, I guess the main, uh, you know, milestones I see on on the way to the end here are uh, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the fall of Babylon, and uh, the Gog and Magog war. Well, well, uh, right. I, I mean, we could walk through the, the the revelation, and we could see how the the revelation prophecy is his, history written in advance, and the revelation of Jesus Christ is, for the most part, history written in advance, but it does have some visions of the past and, and some messages for the present, like the messages to the seven churches that are interspersed with it. But for the most part, the revelation of Jesus Christ is indeed history written in advance, just like the prophet Daniel in 570-something, 560-something B.C., in his visions where they're recorded, wrote history in advance. And, and Daniel proves to be absolutely accurate for as many as 2,000 years. Or 2,500 years, I'm sorry. Daniel's prophecies can be clearly identified right up through the time of the papacy and the end of the papacy. The end of the temporal power of the papacy with the, the age of liberalism. That's where the prophecies in Daniel that have, that there's a couple that have not been fulfilled and a couple that are sealed, for instance, Daniel chapter 11, and I can't tell if all of them have been fulfilled, but some of them clearly haven't. So, that's where Daniel is. The Revelation is the same way. It's history written in advance. And in the Revelation, it's much easier to see which parts have been fulfilled and which parts have not once you understand the correct context of the Old Testament and ancient history. Because like we said last week, it, if um, you don't understand the beginnings, you can't possibly start to understand the end. So the Revelation is a series of visions which, for the most part, can accurately be explained and have been fulfilled until the point in Revelation chapter 17 where it says that they will hand over their kingdom to the beast. That's where we're at. We've handed our kingdom over to the beast. The white nations handed their kingdom over to the beast with the advent of the central banking system when we handed over the control and creation of all of our money and economies to the Edomite Jew. And that's the point we're at now. Except that certain portions, because of the way the Revelation is written, it's a series of visions. And some visions follow the ones before it. But some visions are like umbrella visions, where they'll summarize in a separate vision what has happened up to a given point. And there is an umbrella vision in Revelation chapter 12, which summarizes everything that happened up to that point. And there's another umbrella vision in Revelation chapter 20, which very well describes what's going on right now, even though... Revelation chapters 18 and 19 have not yet been fulfilled. Because in Revelation chapter 19, in Revelation chapter 18, Babylon falls. So right now, Babylon is the world political and economic system which 
we are locked into, Mystery Babylon. And the whore of Babylon is us, the children of Israel. And, and we could get into more details of that to prove that in the future, if, if you want, in, in, as these podcasts un, unwind. But we're the whore. The white race is the whore that's chained to the Jew. Because the Jew has control of all of our money and our economies and our national political processes because of his control of the money. Like Rothschild said, I don't care who rules the country. Give me control of the money and I'll rule the country. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. And that's true. And he got control of the money and he is, or the, the world banking system is the eighth beast. Okay, maybe, you know, I, I did write an article on this. Uh, it's on my blog at donaldfox.wordpress.com. Babylon the Great has fallen. So maybe we can spend a little time on that now. Um, I think to go over, okay, so, it, and I think you've, act, you know, and I heard your podcast back in March uh, called, you know, Christian Expectations. And that's when it really, this started really clicking for me. And um, I said, okay, well, He's absolutely right. Uh, this beast is the world Jewish economic system. So, what what would cause this system to fall apart? Um, and that's something you know. I used to work in, you know, I'm an IT guy, but I used to support you know stockbrokers and stuff. So I, you know, and I listened to Alex Jones and I picked up some stuff in, in the financial world. You know, I'm by no means an expert, but enough to have a, a fairly informed opinion on some of this. So. When is this whole thing going to collapse? So I, I went over to Zero Hedge, and uh, Mike Snyder wrote an article there a couple of years ago, and uh, he says, okay, when is the U.S. banking system going to crash? I can sum it up in three words. Watch the derivatives. Okay, so you know, maybe before we go any farther, what, just what is a derivative? Um, so uh, I went over to uh, Investopedia, and you know, I spent a lot of time there because I would take calls on this stuff, and I didn't know what people were talking about. So, it, me and all my buddies on the help desk, we did spend quite a bit of time over at Investopedia. And uh, their definition is okay. So, what is a derivative? A derivative is a security with a price that is dependent upon or derived from one or more underlying assets. The derivative itself is a contract between two or more parties based upon the asset or assets. Its value is determined by fluctuations in the underlying asset. The most common underlying assets include stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, interest rates, and market uh, indexes. Derivatives can either be traded over the counter, OTC, or on an exchange. OTC derivatives uh, constitute the greater portion of derivatives in existence and are unregulated, whereas derivatives traded on exchanges are standardized. OTC derivatives generally have greater risk uh, for the counterparty than do standardized derivatives. So there's there's more than one kind of derivative, obviously. Um, what are the, some of the common forms? Um, well, I guess the, the I guess to to, to sum it up, uh, uh, what, what's the underlying characteristic of all these derivatives? It's, it's usually high leverage. Um, so we, we see this in different forms, you know, futures contracts, um, one of the most common 
uh, types of derivatives, a futures contract, or simply futures is how they're referred to colloquially. Uh, There's no doubt that a lot of the derivatives are, are basically based on air. Yeah, yeah. It's an agreement between two parties for the sale of an asset at an agreed-upon price. You know, so, hey, I think my my Acme stock will be worth 80 bucks in three years. and So it's kind of a gamble. Um, and then uh, Now, the big one I think people should pay attention to are swaps. Um, so what is a swap? Swaps are another common type of derivative. A swap is most often a contract between two parties agreeing to trade loan terms. Uh, one might use an interest rate swap in order to switch from a variable interest rate loan to a fixed interest rate loan, or vice versa. Or if someone with a variable interest rate loan were trying to secure additional financing, a lender might deny him or her a loan because of the uncertain future uh, bearing of the variable interest rate upon the individual's ability to repay debts, perhaps fearing the individual will default. For this reason, uh, he or she may seek to switch their variable interest rate loan with someone else who has a loan with a fixed interest rate that is uh, otherwise uh, similar. Although these loans will remain in the original holder's names, the contract mandates that each party will make payments towards the other's loan at a mutually agreed-upon rate. See how complex this is getting already? Oh, yeah. And, uh, derivatives are, are – there's derivatives on mortgage bundles – and, and yes, and they, yes. Someday they're going to try to put derivatives on on things like water and and oxygen and things yeah. like that. I, they, they, I think they want to monetize everything. The biggest the biggest one to watch out for is the credit default swap, and that's one that that reared its ugly head back in two thousand eight. And um, what the real goal of the credit default swap is the destruction of your pension fund. So okay, so how does how exactly does that all work out? Okay, well as, as I understand it, um, credits. Okay, say you take your average pension fund. Uh, you've got your uh, say your Teamsters retirement or whatever union. You know, in the bylaws of that that organization or your teachers union, they say, hey, you can't invest our money in anything that isn't at least triple A rated. You know, we're not buying triple B junk bonds because we can't risk the investment. So. Wall Street's got some of these mortgage-backed securities they want to sell the pension fund. But the pension fund bylaws say, hey, we can't buy this crap. So how do you get around that? Well, what they did was they got AIG to come in there, and um, AIG would back these mortgage-backed securities. So it's insurance that isn't really insurance. So now that AIG is taking on the risk, the pension fund it, it, it now uses – AIG's credit rating instead of the the junk bond status of the crap they're trying to sell you. So it's a way to take worthless paper and jack it up to AAA value. Now your pension fund buys the the crappy mortgage-backed security, and then when everything crashes, you go back to AIG, but you find out AIG has done a zillion of these default swaps, and they don't have any money to pay any of it. So right. the end result of this is your pension fund gets stuck holding the bag, and then now there's no assets there. The, okay, there's no doubt. We don't. It, here's the important thing to me is to understand first when you read Revelation chapter 18 that Mystery Babylon is definitely built on global trade. 
global trade and finance. That's what it is. It's all globalism is mystery Babylon. Globalism is anathema to God. The children of Israel were chastised all the way back in the prophecies of Amos and Hosea for globalism, for relying on international trade and dealings with other nations that they were never supposed to have um, contracts or commitments with. So this global economic system is described as falling, and it's described as falling very quickly. Yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, my last point here would be, okay, so right now the economy has got basically uh, five too-big-to-fail banks, you know, and maybe even six, um, depending on whatever. But here's here's just some numbers to throw at you. Um, so if one of these banks goes down, then the global trade system is going to go down with it. So, um, so we, we covered briefly what derivatives are, and it's, it turns out to be basically, I guess for our purposes here in this discussion, you could almost say a derivative is really like a Jewish Talmudic type of scam. Yeah, you know? right. It's gambling on the future to generate yep. large amounts of money now. The the yep. the Jews had most of the world's wealth concentrated amongst them before Michael Milken came along. But the derivative scam has given them control of an incredible amount of wealth at a very small level. I, I mean, okay, to bundle mortgages. If, if you can buy a whole bundle of mortgages at one time and, and gamble and get it for pennies on a dollar, right? You invest pennies on a dollar in these mortgages and get control over this whole bundle of millions of mortgages in one transaction. The power that you have, that's incredible. It is. Yeah, and here's here's these here's these five banks. I went over to uh and this article is a couple of years old now. This was uh like I said from Zero Hedge, Michael Snyder was talking about the derivatives and here's here's some numbers to, to contemplate, you know, and it's probably even worse now. This is almost two years old numbers. Um okay, so JP Morgan Chase. They have two point five trillion dollars in assets and sixty eight trillion in derivatives exposure. Citibank. One point nine trillion in assets, sixty trillion in derivatives exposure. Goldman Sachs, nine hundred and sixteen billion in assets, fifty four trillion in derivatives exposure. Bank of America, two point one trillion in assets, fifty four trillion in derivatives exposure. And a Morgan's, bank asset yeah, a bank asset isn't money and gold that they have on hand. No. That that's another scam too. But even taking their you know their puffed up asset at face value, this still looks pretty ugly. And then Morgan Stanley, they've got eight hundred and thirty one billion in assets, and forty five trillion in derivatives exposure. And eight hundred and one billion in assets means that there are people out in society that owe Morgan Stanley eight hundred and one yep. billion dollars. Yeah, it's not like they've got eight hundred and thirty one billion right. sitting there in deposit. When you loan me $100 and you're a banker, you count that $100 you loaned me as an asset. So yeah, whether I pay you pocket. back or not, <laughs> yeah, it's irrelevant. Yeah, so, but even, so, yeah, even if, like, of course, so these assets are probably overinflated. And the derivatives may, in fact, be under 
stated. So, but either way, I mean, just taking it at face value, this is an ugly picture. So, now what they'll say is, you know, and some of the articles I've read will say, well, hey, look, okay, these derivatives look bad, but it's not as bad as you think. We've got computerized algorithms, and um, this stuff all balances out, and, you know, we're not going to get in trouble again, yada, yada. Well, really is what we saw in 2008, you know, 2007, 2008, when one part of the economy starts tanking and a bunch of these bets start to fail, this whole thing can unravel uh, in, in rather short order. Well, right, and I'm not going to count the derivative scheme out by any means. That could very well, it looks like the most obvious way to crumble the economy. And and it, if the right Jew calls the cards in on any one of these banks, it, it could tumble. There's no doubt. It, it, the whole thing could unwind and, and fa- fall apart. When it falls apart, it has to be in a way that people no longer trust the system. Come out of her, my people, lest she suffer her punishments. People are going to have to turn on the system in that. Yeah, now, again, you know, Bill and I don't have a crystal ball here. We don't know exactly how or when this is all going to play out. I'm just saying, you know, analyzing the data that I got in front of me today in, you know, the summer of 2016, this is what I'm seeing. You know. Right, it's it's mystery Babylon. It's it's like um, Dorothy in a Wizard of Oz, right? I, I mean, the 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 the, um, the wizard looks like this great powerful creature, but it's a really a little Jew behind a curtain. <laughs> that, that's basically <laughs> that's it. it. So <laughs> that's what we see with these two big to fail banks, you know, and. Uh, as Bill talked about, okay, so what, getting joined to the beast, you know, that happened over a period of a, a few hundred years. And for the United States, it was cemented when the Federal Reserve Act right. uh, passed through. So we pitched our wagon to the Jewish economic system. Right. We're the whore, and, and we're, in, yep. we're chained to the beast. And there's no way that, I mean, not with, if you have any intellectual honesty at all, there's no way you can deny that. I mean... If you have any any discernment whatsoever, that that's obviously what's going on in society today. Well, well, if you look at um, if you look at Revelation chapter twelve, there's a story about a woman with twelve stars. Those twelve stars represent the twelve tribes of Israel, and the woman with twelve stars is um, gives birth to the Christ child. Who is who is killed? Who who is slain? Right. The the red dragon is Herod, the Edomite king of Judea, trying to kill the Christ child. Revelation chapter twelve. And the woman is taken off into the wilderness. Well, the woman technically is really in the wilderness. The twelve tribes of Israel are already in um, the Assyrian captivity, they're out of Palestine, and, and they're settling, they're in the process of settling. The, the, the process doesn't really end for five or six more centuries, but they're in the process of being taken off into the wilderness where she's given rest from the dragon. And the dragon goes off to make war with the rest of her seed and sends a flood after the woman. But the woman's given rest from the dragon for, for like a thousand years. And 
for a thousand years, Christianity, once it finally was established, ostracized the Jew. Once Christianity was established, the Jew was completely ostracized from Christian society. And that roughly coincides with the time that Satan is locked in the pit in, in Revelation chapter 18. And the woman in Revelation chapter 12 goes off into the wilderness and she's comforted with the gospel for a thousand years, which is the thousand year period that it took our race to accept the gospel of Christ. Now, John is taken back to the wilderness later on in Revelation chapter 17. He's taken back to the wilderness. Why is John taken to the wilderness in Revelation 17? Because that's where the woman went in Revelation chapter 12. She was taken to the wilderness. So John's taken back to the wilderness in Revelation chapter 17. But she's no longer a woman, an innocent-looking woman, with her, with her Bible and her 12 stars. Now she's a whore dressed in scarlet on a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy. It's the same woman. It's two different visions of the same woman. The first woman is the, the, the innocent Christian woman in the wilderness, and the second woman becomes a whore. That's our race. That's what we've become. Yeah, that's exactly the state we're in. I mean, we've, we have completely turned our, our, like you say, our kingdom over to the Jew. Um, right. We've we've let them, hey, print our money. I mean, really, what, whether you say, like, hey, this company's owned by Jews or this one, they're actually, they're all owned by Jews. Because who prints the money? You know, right. we, we, we had this debate, like, what's the largest corporation in the United States? Well, it's the Federal Reserve. Right. They print all the money. They all the All the other corporations use the currency that the Federal Reserve produces or generates on a computer i mean there's no actual there isn't even physical currency but right the entire stock market is very evil on multiple levels adolf hitler hated the stock market because he understood that it was a scheme to suck the power and control of industry away from a nation and into the hands of certain international merchants that's exactly what it is the stock yep. market is evil from the ground up, and it's evil in different ways at different levels. If you're General Motors and you want to raise a billion dollars, do you sell a billion dollars worth of what worth of automobiles and 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 take your profit and set it aside, and the next year sell a billion and until you can raise a billion dollars? No. What do you do? You just print stock. And that devalues all the stock that everybody owns from your company. You just print stock and trade it to the Jews at the Federal Reserve by selling the stock for dollars. That's all you're doing. You're creating currency. But in the end, the currency you created is basically printed by the Federal Reserve, who's in control of everything. Yep. Yeah. I mean, what company... In the United States does not accept dollars. If you don't accept dollars, you'll probably go to prison for for, for refusing to accept dollars. You, I mean, well, it's exactly. Tender, you have to accept it. Yeah, exactly. This this is you know legal tender for all debts, public and private. 
Right. So you can't not accept it. It's not. It's a. It says Federal Reserve note on your dollar or your twenty or your ten, whatever you got. It's a Federal Reserve note. It's not a United States note, like Kennedy was printing. It's a Federal Reserve debt note. It's a debt instrument. Well, these markets and these fiat currencies are how the Jew has come to rule the world. And, and as yes. long as the Jewish international bankers are in control of those things, you cannot outvote him. You cannot outpolitic him. If he's creating your money, you're his slave. Yeah, the only you, thing yeah, it, it, that the only no matter, thing that keeps the system together is the illusion of And it says currency of the United States on it. So most Americans think although it's starting to change to a degree, but most people think the government prints money. Yeah, they think right. the Treasury Department. Yeah, that's a joke. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a, it's a fraud. It's a private Jewish corporation. Because who 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 owns the Federal Reserve? You know, Dean Henderson did a great article on that a few years ago, and it's it's basically all Jewish oligarchs. You know, that that own the Federal Reserve. You know, Rockefeller and Rothschild and jp morgan and uh, warburg you know the usual suspects that's who owns the federal reserve well well right it's the it, it's who owns the banks who <laughs> that who, oh yeah because um, yeah because technically you the public can't buy stock in the federal reserve only member banks can and who owns those banks right that's actually and that's actually a national that's that's actually uh uh it's a national security uh deal you can't just go in and find out they've got that that's a national security issue well well right all the banks are apparently public companies but they're not they're not public company they have different class shares and no american is ever going to be able to buy enough class voting class shares of any one of those banks all that voting class stock is controlled by the foundations and and the corporations of the Jews that founded those banks back in the 1700s 1800s that there's yeah. no going in the, and buying enough stock in in JP Morgan or or Chase Manhattan to control that bank no you're not doing that you cannot buy that stock no it it really i mean anything you buy it, it, it's like you'd be a green bay packer fan buying stock in the packers you know it's just absolutely worthless paper anything you anything you would manage to get your hands on there's no bearing on how that institution is run and you know, really, and what is the Federal Reserve when you boil it all down? Really, the Federal Reserve is there to bail out these Wall Street banks. That's what its purpose is. It works for those banks. And so right, even with this work. unlimited credit, basically, these banks are so corrupt that they're going to collapse. That They've had, what, a 0% interest rate for yeah. how long? But you try to go get a loan at 0%. That's not happening. Yeah, I mean, with yeah, with my credit, they'll say, "Well, hey, you suck." You know, if we even give you a loan at all, it'll be like you know, ten, twelve, thirteen percent. You know. Well, well, that's the that's the system. We are actually all the white nations are enslaved to this central banking system, and, and they think they have a democracy. They think they have an, an illusion of freedom, but the Jewish-controlled media 
works in harmony with this central banking system in order to maintain the illusion while giving the people news that keeps them enslaved and, and views yep. that keep them enslaved. And, and the entertainment industry is also in collusion with those same Jews. And, and yeah, that's why you'll never see anything truly independent come out of Hollywood. Because the no. same Jews that control the central banking system and, and the Federal Reserve also control Hollywood. And, and they all basically, in, in a way, go to the same synagogue and, and have the same goals and objectives in mind. That's why it's impossible for any upstart to, um, to, to affect the public dialogue on any large scale. Because all the Jews have to do is ignore you. Yeah, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, out of all the pundits I've heard over the years, I thought Catherine Austin Fitz had a pretty good summation of what, what we have. She calls it the central bank slash warfare model of society. And that's what we've been under now for several hundred years. Right. Um, yeah, you get the central bank to, you know, create money and credit. And then you have a, your, armed ser- your armed services really work for that central bank. You know, it says U.S. Army, but really it's the Federal Reserve Army. Well, right. And, they and defend- that was the whole driving force behind the British Empire. The, the entire British Empire, once they got the Bank of England in there, the Bank of England in short time became the controlling interest in all of the companies through which the English operated overseas, whether it be the East India Company, the Muscovy Company, the Virginia Company, the the Hudson Bay Company. The Bank of England gained control over all those companies, and during the Napoleonic Wars, the Rothschilds gained control of the Bank of England. Yeah. So, for my analysis of the situation, okay. So, how long until these whole these banks collapse? I mean, they on the one hand they seem uh, enormously powerful with all this unlimited uh, creation of credit and and currency, but on the other, we know it's coming down, and we see how corrupt it is. I guess you know, for my money, I guess I'd say, well, how long do you think? the band-aids that they put on the system after the 2008 crash. How long do you think those are going to hold up? They'll have more band-aids. It's how long can they contain all of the member nations of this scheme? How much control do they really have? And, 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 um, that, that'll dictate how long I think they could keep the system together. But they could unplug it anytime they want just by causing the, the derivatives disaster that's looming on the horizon yeah i mean you know somebody somewhere right now has got their hands on the plunger it's just when are they gonna hit it it's on god's time that's the way i look at it there's two things going on right now and they have to operate in harmony there's the um revelation chapter 18 waiting for Mystery Babylon to fall, which is the world banking system, while at the same time, there's Revelation chapter 20, and Satan gathering the armies of Gog and Magog against the camp of the saints. And you can't possibly understand that unless you understand who Satan is in the world. Because Satan's in the world. Satan's not some boogeyman in heaven. Who the armies of Gog and Magog are, 
and where the camp of the saints is. Yeah, I guess we can probably touch on that now. Uh, so almost like if you go to Google and you punch in Gog and Magog war, um, invariably every map you'll see shows armies from Russia and Turkey and Asia all going into the state in Palestine. So, okay, we spent a couple, three hours going down how that, that outlaw state in Palestine is not well, well, the true children of Israel. Well, let's talk about the outlaw state in Palestine first, right, if, if you want. And maybe we could touch on Gog and Magog and finish that or, or talk about that at greater length in the next segment. Yeah, I think I think we should Gog and Magog should probably be in its own show. I think. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the state in Palestine because the state in Palestine is in prophecy. It, it's actually sure. in prophecy a couple of discrete times, but the, the the most clear place that the state in Palestine is discussed is in Malachi chapter one. In, in my opinion. And to understand Malachi chapter 1, you have to understand and and basically accept everything that we've said about the Jews really being the Edomites of the Old Testament. And that should be clear in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul offers a prayer. He cares about his kinsmen according to the flesh. Because that's what brother means in Greek. There's no spiritual brethren. There's no spiritual kinsmen. Your kinsmen are according to the flesh. And Paul went to a lot of people in Europe with his epistles that he identified as Israelites and the seed of Abraham. But there were some Israelites still in Palestine. Now, he makes a prayer about his kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are Israelites. And then he says that the word of God didn't fail, because not all of those in Israel are of Israel. Meaning not all of the people in the land of Israel are actually the people of Israel. And Paul goes on to compare Jacob and Esau, and vessels of destruction and vessels of mercy. And the children of Jacob, the true Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, are vessels of mercy. But the vessels of destruction are the Edomites, who are the Jews. They're the, they're the Jews because by 70 AD, all of the people of Israel had a choice to convert to Christianity. And those who did convert to Christianity were never again identified as Judeans or Israelites. And Paul explains that in his epistles also. But the Edomites who were left behind, who could never accept Christ because they're vessels of destruction, they kept the identity of Jews. And when Jerusalem was destroyed, they were still Jews, and they fought against the Romans in, in their little uprisings for another 50 or 60 years after that, in the Kedos War and the Bar Kokhba Revolt. And the Romans cleared them all out of Palestine, but that only militantized them and, and, and made their identity as Jews, even though they were Edomites, it made their identity as Jews um, 
an even stronger identity because of their wars as Jews with the Romans for 60 or 70 years. So, these Edomites, who are now called Judeans, Christ identifies, and the Revelation is written, the Revelation of John is written about 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And Christ identifies them as those who say they are Judeans, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. And he's talking about the same Edomite Jews that Paul was talking about in his epistle of the Romans, which was written 13 years before Jerusalem was destroyed. And when Paul wrote Romans, he said in Romans chapter 16, talking to Romans, that God would crush Satan under their feet shortly. That's not a reference to any spiritual hocus-pocus. That's a reference to the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome. That's what that's a reference to. And that's what happened in Jerusalem. God crushed Satan under the feet of the Romans. Now, he didn't destroy Satan entirely, or we wouldn't have Jews today. It's that simple. And he wouldn't have mentioned him again in the Revelation 25 years later. So the Jews, collectively, they are Satan. And, and there's a lot of other scriptures that, that, that help us understand that. In Malachi chapter 1, there's a prophecy. And Malachi is a prophet of the second temple period. The temple's already built. He, he's the last prophet of the Old Testament. The second temple was rebuilt in the days of the two prophets before him. Haggai and Zechariah were both just before Malachi. A few years later along comes Malachi. And he gives a very esoteric prophecy right in the first six verses, five verses of his prophecy. And I'm going to read them. The Burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. And this is the exact same scripture that Paul quotes 400 years later when he writes Romans in Romans chapter 9. So here we have a dialogue in the opening chapter of Malachi. Dialogues were very popular in those days. The Socratic dialogue was considered the, 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 the father of this in Western literature, but that's not true. The dialogues in literature go all the way back to Ecclesiastes and some of the wisdom books of the Old Testament and the prophets. Most of the Hebrew prophets have dialogues, which are um, theoretical dialogues between God and the children of Israel. And this is what Malachi chapter 1 is. It's a theoretical dialogue between God and the children of Israel. And God says to the children of Israel, I have loved you. And then it says that the children of Israel answer, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? But God tells them, I love Jacob, and I hated Esau. So what we have here is 
a vision of God telling the children of Israel that he loves them. But the children of Israel, instead of being concerned with their love, you know, they're being loved by God and being concerned for God, the children of Israel are concerned with the Edomites. The children of Israel are concerned with Esau, not with themselves in a relationship with God. Now let's put that on the back burner for just a moment. And God says, And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. And that did happen. That happened by the time that of Malachi, when Edomia had become a barren place. But what happened in history is that most of the people of Esau moved to other nations. Many of them moved into Palestine. And that's not spoken of here. It's outside of the scope and purpose of this. But it's discussed at length in Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35, which is only a couple of hundred years before Malachi. And the dialogue continues. And it continues with the words of God putting putting a dialogue into the mouth of the Edomites. And it says, Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. Now, when was this fulfilled? The truth is, it was never fulfilled. Malachi is a prophet of the second temple. Edomia was already laid waste, and Jerusalem was just rebuilt and was not yet laid laid waste. And if you go to the Gospel, Christ told his Edomite adversaries because he's speaking to Edomites that opposed him. The Sadducees and much of his chief opposition were the leaders and rulers of the people, and they were almost all Edomites. And he says, your house will be left to you desolate. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Now, Edomia was never rebuilt. And Jerusalem was never rebuilt, not by any people of God or anybody claiming to be the people of God, right? Jerusalem was destroyed. It was wiped level to the ground in 70 AD. All the Jews were run out of there. By the Muslim period, any whites that were left, because there were still some whites left, some people descended from Israelite, Roman, Greek, Christians were forcibly converted to Islam and race-mixed and and destroyed in the Muslim period. Now they're basically Arab peoples. And there was some building, the temple temple of the rock, right? And and the, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt to a small extent in the Muslim period and to a greater extent later in the Crusader period. But... Jerusalem was never considered a a holy city. It was always a Muslim city. It was always a a hellhole. And it was never really a, a, a great city again until recently 
Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. That was fulfilled in the 20th century. That was fulfilled when these Edomite Jews went back to attempt to rebuild Jerusalem and Palestine. That's the fulfillment. And they are the Edomites of the Old Testament who today are returned and have rebuilt the desolate places. But they're not the people of God. That's not the camp of the saints. They are the enemies of God. And when Esau returns and builds the desolate places, which never happened until the 20th century, thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall be called the border of wickedness, the people against whom God has indignation forever. That's what we're waiting for, but that's not going to happen until the fall of Mystery Babylon. And that is not the camp of the saints of Revelation chapter 20. The camp no, of the not saints is yeah, not, not in all, Palestine. Yeah, but, yeah the, the, the opening salvo I had there was those people that inhabit Jerusalem today and Palestine, they are obviously evil and wicked. Right. They're, and a, Malachi, they're a nuclear Yeah, I'm they're sorry. a nuclear terrorist state. They're not Mal- the people of God. Malachi chapter one is really where Jacob has more concern for Esau than he has for himself and his relationship with God. That describes the Judeo Christian of today. And Malachi chapter one is really in those opening Versus a prophecy of Christian Zionism. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Like, what do you see today? Christians united for Israel. And... Yeah, they're more concerned with these Edomite bastards than their God. They don't worship Jesus in Judeo-Christian churches. No. They worship Jews. How many Christian churches now do you go into, and they have an Israeli flag up in there? Oh wow! I took. I, I could. I never saw that in my life. Until um, 2013, I had moved to um, Bristol, Virginia to be with my new wife and, and um, Melissa. And she took me for a ride one day in the country because I wanted to see what it was like west of Bristol. So we get on the Lee Highway, and we're driving west of Bristol. And that's the first time I ever saw a flag on a Judeo-Christian church, and I almost lost it. I could not believe it. An, an Israeli flag on a Judeo-Christian church. And I took a picture, we took pictures, and I saw another house down the road from that church. And the house had a Confederate flag hanging up with an Israeli flag underneath it. I could not believe that. That that, And I took pictures of that and, and wrote an article about it on Christagenia called the Beelzebub Belt instead of the Bible Belt. Yeah. The Beelzebub Belt. Belt, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, and for everybody that's concerned about the Confederate flag getting relegated to the dustbin history, who do you think's behind that movement? Yeah, right, the same Jews. It's incredible. So, yeah, that, that tells you how clueless the, you know, most of the Judeo-Christians are. Well, well, if you want to look for the Jewish restoration in Jerusalem and Palestine, that's where you have to go. You have to go to Malachi chapter 1. Because they're the people that have returned to rebuild the desolate places. That's why Christ told them that your house would be left to you desolate. 
And we see this this prophecy here being fulfilled before our eyes. The clue to the camp of the saints, the key to the camp of the saints, is back in Daniel chapter 2. We have to go back to Daniel chapter 2, and and I'm going to read, if you don't mind, a a small part of it. Sure, go go right ahead. It it describes these... um, let, let me find the right verse, because I don't want to end up reading half the chapter on you and putting everybody to sleep. It describes these um, first four kingdoms, the Babylonian, and then the Medo-Persian, and then after that, the Greek, and then after that, the Roman. And it says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these peoples, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it break in pieces the iron, meaning the Roman Empire, the brass, meaning the Greek Empire, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And there's only one people that destroyed and, and rose above and subsumed all of those ancient kingdoms. And that's the Germanic people. They are Daniel's fifth kingdom. And a portion of them had destroyed the Roman Empire, had Dominate, come to dominate the Greeks, the Persians, and 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 the the Mesopotam, the Babylonians have come to dominate that entire world. It was a process. It didn't happen overnight. It was a process, like everything else in prophecy that unfolds in history, is a process, not a signal event. There are some signal events that give us markers along the way. But this was a process, and only the Germanic people, of whom the Anglo-Saxons are, of course, a part of, have fulfilled that in history. They are that stone cut out of the mountain without hands. So the Germanic people, especially after the time of the Reformation, came to dominate the world and world history. I mean, everybody in the world speaks English, right? And and German technology is basically what the world runs on. So we've come to the top of the heap and, and dominated society. Even all of our our fellow European nations are dominated by the German and Anglo Saxon people. And they're the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. And they, wherever they are, they are the camp of the saints. They're the Christian people that have done God's work in the world and, and, and fulfilled all of the biblical prophecy concerning the ancient tribes of Israel are centered around them today in spite of the fact that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans also um, contained many of the many other branches of the race of the tribes of Israel. In spite of that, these Anglo-Saxon and Germanic and Celtic people, which, which includes the Scandinavians and other you know, minor branches of them, these are the camp of the saints. 
And it's those who Satan has now surrounded with all of the Gog and Magog hordes, which are represented by the world's other races, because they are the flood that the dragon sent after the woman to persecute the woman in Revelation chapter 12. There's only one race which is being subsumed with all of these other races, and that's the white race. You don't see mass immigration in, into um, the Congo to race mix niggers with, with, with Irishmen. You know, it, it's absurd to think that anybody but our white race at this day and time represent the camp of the saints. The saints in the book of the Revelation are not Jews. Jews are described in the book of Revelation as the synagogue of Satan. It's the Jews that are at the vanguard of surrounding the camp of the saints with all the world's other people. That's what's going on in this immigration battle these last 50 years in all the white nations. Well, uh, maybe, uh, do you want to cover that this week, or should we uh, Well, should we well we've already for... been at this an hour and for, I, I don't know, a while. May, we should save this, and, and I'll get into yeah. it later, right? Because we could... Yeah go into the time of Jacob's trouble and, and a whole lot of other things and and the the period of the two beasts is important to understand the time of Jacob's trouble. But today we've laid a foundation for all of that. And and this isn't yeah. gonna be the college course, right? The college course is in Christagenia. I'm sorry, it takes a hundred podcasts yeah. to get all this out. But this will be a good foundation for anybody that wants to learn the details and all of the minute historical proofs and and can, can go search it out so i think we've really done a good job here setting the stage uh for understanding the book of revelation uh you know especially these last few chapters here that describe the condition of our white race uh, well, well, right. as it is and, today maybe we could start out the next program i could give just an overview of the stages which are outlined in the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation explains stages in history. And, and it's, it's all laid out very, very well if, if you understand history. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, we definitely want to cover a little more about uh, the time of Jacob's trouble because people think now that there's going to be this, you know, this seven year tribulation coming. And, you know, that, and the that's whole a, revelation is in the future. And and that's all yep. a, a, a deceit of trickery. And that trickery, for the most part, began in the early years of the Reformation. In the early years of the Reformation, when intelligent men who knew history, who knew classical history, began to study the scripture, they began to realize that the um the the Catholic Church was really part of the beast described in Revelation chapter thirteen and in Daniel chapter seven. And those men were right. They were correct. They didn't understand the underlying Jewish power as well, but and some of them did understand it, but they didn't understand it as well as we can understand it today. But they were correct that the Catholic Church was actually part of this beast described in Revelation. And we can get into the details of that in the next segment, if you want. But 
when that happened, there's a whole lot of art and woodcuts, and some of them are on Christogenia on some of my papers, of the Pope being depicted as the Antichrist, and the fulfillment of these scriptures in Revelation chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7, which actually correlate. So the Catholics had to do something to, um, to deflect that from the Roman Church. And what they did was this Jesuit priest came up with this crazy idea of futurism and made a whole lengthy um, treatise based on that. Now, he didn't originate it. The idea existed in some of the earliest Christian writings. Elements of it had had been mentioned in the writings of Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and some of the early Christian writers. But that's the thing with the Revelation. You can't read the Revelation and predict the future. You can't do it. You can read the Revelation and understanding history, look back and know that God is true. You can do that. So, <coughs> these early Christian writers saw these things far off in the future, and they were far off in their future, but Irenaeus understood, for instance, that Daniel and the Revelation were both describing the fall of Rome. Now, he thought Rome would fall, and that would be the end of the world, but he had that much understanding, and he was correct. But you can't look at all these things and predict the future. In hindsight, we could see their mistakes, but that's only because we had the hindsight. Just like we can't look at Revelation chapter 18 and say when Babylon's going to fall, but we know it's going to fall because we understand the first 17 chapters of the Revelation have indeed been fulfilled. And they've been fulfilled in stages. But the Roman Church had to deflect the criticism of being identified as part of the beast. So these Jesuits in the 14th and 15th centuries, what they did was develop the futurism of the early Christian writers to a much greater degree in order to project all of these prophecies far off into the future and a seven-year tribulation that hasn't begun yet. And when you do that, you're basically taking the sovereignty of God out of all history and projecting it to some period far off in the future. And that way you can get away with all the crimes you want to. Because you can't be labeled as the Antichrist. The Apostle John told us who the Antichrist was. He explained it very thoroughly. He said they came out from us, but they were not of us. The only people that came out of first century Judea who were not of the Apostles in Christ are the Edomite Jews. So the Antichrist came out from them, but were not of them and deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's who the Antichrist is. We are not looking at some future Antichrist. We've been living with the Antichrist all these centuries. He lives in the big fancy house down the road. He lives around the corner where he owns the deli or the bank or, or, or the shoe store. The Antichrist has always been all around us. They're called Jews. Yes, yeah. 
yeah, the average person thinks that uh, this tribulation is going to come, and then there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And then after that, there's going to be um, Satan's going to get turned loose again and, and then and raise that, hell. Yeah, you know, the Revelation is a series of visions, and some of those visions are, are in sequence and succession, and it's very clear. But other visions are detached and overarching. That's why I call them umbrella visions. Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 12. In, in other words, okay, if you go back into the Hebrew prophets, they had a couple of methods of prophecy. One is called parallelism. Another one is called reduplication. And a parallelism is when... Something's described, it's mentioned in a sentence or in a paragraph or in an entire chapter, and then right after that, you see another description, and the wording is a little different, but it's really describing the same thing that just happened. That's a parallelism. It's two different sentences. It could be a sentence or it could be a phrase that describe the same thing. Well, they take these that these prophecies in the Revelation, and they want to make them represent a directly chronological sequence of events from start to finish. So if one thing's happened and it's over with, then the next chapter or verse has to describe something that happens immediately after that. Well, that's not the, the way the, the Revelation is written. That's not the way it's written at all. If that was the way that the prophets were written, then Israel would have been destroyed and rebuilt a thousand times. Because they're basically telling you in different ways, many times, that Israel's going to be destroyed and, and rebuilt, or, or rebuilt and destroyed, or whatever. And, and the city was only built once, and, and then again, the temple was built after 586 B.C. So this that there's a first Jerusalem and the Babylonian destruction and a second Jerusalem and a second temple. But if you read how many times the Hebrew prophets talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, you'd think that there were 50 Jerusalems if you insisted on interpreting the prophecy the way to interpret the revelation. It's not one continuous chronological thread of event after event. It's a description in a vision of certain events, and then it's a description in a vision of certain other events, which might include elements of the first. But that don't mean those elements are going to happen twice. They're only going to happen once, right? Revelation chapter 20 and the thousand years, that's an umbrella vision. It's a separate vision from the five or six chapters before it, which represent a continuous narrative. It's a separate vision which includes the first visions in the chapters before it. It's not to be seen as a chronological sequence at some point in the future. The thousand years that Satan was in the pit was when the Catholic Church had forbidden Jews from holding Christian slaves had forbidden Jews from holding offices of authority anywhere in Christian nations, forbid Jews from, from 
many things that, that, that Jews are want to do that basically drove them out of the empire. It drove the Jews out of the, the Byzantines in the 5th century BC ostracized the Jews politically, socially, and economically so that Jews could not function. So most of the Jews left the Byzantine Empire. They went to Algeria. They went to Arabia where they founded Islam. They went to Khazaria where they founded a Khazar Turkic trading empire. They went to these places outside of the empire, and then they built armies to attack the Byzantines and attack the Christian lands that had, that had ostracized them. And that was the reason for the, the wars of the Turks against the Byzantines and against the Eastern European Catholic nations. Romania, Poland, Lithuania, and that was the reason for the Islamic invasions of, of Iberia and France. The Jews did that. The Jews yeah. built those armies. Yeah, the Jews have not forgotten their ostracization uh, this whole time, and that's why today now, what, what's the what, what is the modern, you know, kind of what do we get out of all that? Well. Today now, if you have a job in corporate America, you'll hear things like inclusion and diversity and multiculturalism. All of that goes back to the, 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 all of it, every bit of it, liberty, fraternity, equality, all that bullshit goes back to the values of the French Revolution that the Jew created inside of the Masonic lodges. And Satan was let out of the pit when the Jews were successful with the French Revolution and Napoleon emancipated the Jews, meaning that the Jews became equal citizens again in Europe, that they could take part in the political process, that they could um, hold offices, and that they had all the rights of Christians. That's when Satan was let out of the pit, and that's the beginning of the time of Jacob's trouble. Yeah, and okay, so I think that's a good place to leave it for for this week, and then we'll we'll dive into the time of Jacob's trouble, and then from there we'll do uh, uh, the Gog and Magog war, Camp of the Saints. Wonderful. That's it. I, I mean, they're really that they're really pretty much overlapping. The time. Of yeah, Jacob's they they trouble. are they are overlapping, but yeah, it's three concepts. I think that once you understand that, I think you're going to understand, you know, the way the world is going today. Absolutely. Thank you. Praise Christ. Hey, uh, hey, thanks for joining me, Bill, and uh, we will pick this up again next week. So uh, stay tuned, folks. You don't want to miss this.